0: Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the Sub-China Women's Conference in New York City. Hello, New York! Hello! I am Jeremy Goldcohn. And I am Kaiser Guo. And we are delighted that you could all be here to join uh, us for our conference and for this live recording. Tonight, we are honored to have as our special guest... Janet Yang, who is producer, seasoned consultant, and one of the people who has done the most to promote and to facilitate trans-Pacific knowledge, cooperation, distribution, co-production uh, of a film between the United States and China.
1: Among Janet's many accomplishments, she was responsible early in her career uh, for bringing all the great films from China's uh, fifth-generation filmmakers like Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaige to the United States, Janet was also instrumental in bringing Hollywood film to China as the Chinese film market began to open up. She's best known, perhaps, as the executive producer of the classic uh, Chinese-American film, The Joy Luck Club. The Joy Luck Club. Everyone knows The Joy Luck Club, right? Yeah! Yeah. Janet was also point person for government relations and the general China uber-fixer for (laughs) the uh, Steven Spielberg uh, film Empire of the Sun, which was shot almost entirely in Shanghai. And in addition to her very long list of producer credits for some truly excellent films,
0: Janet is also a member of the Committee of 100, which is an organization whose work in these difficult times is more important than ever. Uh, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't also point out uh, that since I've known her, I've come to regard Janet as something of a long-lost, far more successful, awesome big sister to to me... Uh, not only have I found myself in profound and quite emphatic agreement with just about everything I've ever heard her pronounce on uh, with respect to China or the US or to film or anything else, uh, but also we discovered, more importantly, at a conference in, in Washington, D.C. last year, uh, after we went for a couple of drinks, that we are both able to sing a whole lot of old 1960s and 70s Chinese communist revolutionary songs. I think we'll, we'll, uh, again,
1: you know, get enough drinks (laughs) for us later and we'll, we'll treat you to it. So everybody, please join us in warmly welcoming Janet Young to Seneca.
0: Yeah. Hello.
2: Thank you for that very warm introduction.
1: Yeah, well,
0: uh, you know, I think the first quarter of 2018 was a really important watershed. Uh, not only did Chinese box office actually surpass the United States a couple of years ago, but it actually now, at ha- $3 billion in the first quarter of 2018, surpassed the entire North American market, uh, which is is really quite remarkable. Uh, these days, when I take my kids to see movies, invariably the damn Marvel Comics Universe movies, Uh, Whenever I take my kids to see them, in the opening credits, there's always reference to some Chinese funding. It's either Hawaii Brothers or it's going to be Alibaba or somebody. Uh, If you look for it in the credits of just about any major American production now, you'll see that there's Chinese money involved uh, in it, which is, you know, a good thing, I think. Uh, But what about the other side of this, Janet, the allegation that one hears quite often, really, that Hollywood studios are, you know, they're hoping for big box box office take in China. So they're kind of pandering to, well, to the Chinese Communist Party by altering storylines or engaging in, in forms of self-censorship. Well, how do, how do, you, do you see this?
2: I don't see Hollywood studios pandering at all. I think they would like to know the audience tastes better. I think they would <laughs> like to cater to the audience. If anything, they're trying to not offend the Chinese. They want their films to be seen there. So occasionally they may make sure that the Chinese isn't the bad guy or they may try to put a Chinese actor in a movie to try to gain box office uh, potential and that doesn't even always work. So I think I think a deeper uh, discussion would be about what they're trying to do to actually, uh, inspire and attract Chinese audiences.
0: What do you think they're getting wrong taste-wise?
2: You know, we've had this discussion many times. There really are deep, deep cultural differences. And I think because Hollywood's been sitting on top of the mountain for the last hundred years, it's used to doing things a certain way. Just starting with the fact, for instance, that every hero is a white guy, right? So how, at this point in time, Chinese audiences are becoming much more empowered and they they want to see their own heroes, and that's why so many Chinese films are doing well there. And it's difficult to make that transition. It's a it's a point of view problem, I think, and I, the the paradigm really has to shift. And we all know that Chinese civilization is thousands of years old, and there's just a lot of stories that are deeply embedded into the into the stomach, into the soul of Chinese. And if they can't scratch that a little bit, then I think it's very difficult to get that kind of mass appeal.
0: Not just the damn Monkey King?
2: <laughs> More than just the Monkey King. But, Though but, it, is, it, is, it is interesting that some of those stories live on, that yeah, they can yeah. be exploited again and, and again and again. It just goes to show how unified in a way the education system is, so so many people know so many of the same stories.
1: But John, don't you think we've conflated two things here? The one is uh, movie producers pandering to the Communist Party Which is different from movie producers pandering to a Chinese audience.
2: I think that's a really good point. As you know, when you're dealing with China, there's always at least two streams of thought that have to be uh, going on simultaneously. One is the political factors, and one is the commercial factors. So yes, on the one hand, there is how do I get the movie even approved to be seen in China, and the other is how do I appeal to the Chinese audiences. So those two are sometimes in conflict, um, but you do have to really address both.
1: And on a similar topic, you, you know, you worked on the Empire of the Sun, a great film, which was filmed in China in the same era as the Last Emperor, another you know extraordinary film. And both of those movies, if you look back from today's perspective, it seems extraordinary the amount of access that you had, uh, both in terms of filming locations, but also the ability to shoot a subject about a sensitive, uh, shoot a film about a sensitive historical subject. Um, yeah, I mean, have things got worse? You closed down gugung I mean, you shot in
0: in the Forbidden City. You closed down the Bund. Right, for, 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 I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, and you wrote, you know, you did you did a movie about the last Qing dynasty emperor. A sympathetic portrayal. Sympathetic. I mean, mm. where you know the the Cultural Revolution featured very prominently in it. It was.
2: So it shows that a lot really has changed. One thing that's changed, first of all, is that it's not a novelty anymore. Back in the day, Steven Spielberg wants to make a movie in China. Well, they were gonna pretty damn sure make, you know, open up the doors Bertolucci. So, and then also, obviously, the, there wasn't much of a box office to speak of. So these films were made as what's now called assisted productions, you know, xie pai and not he not an official co-production. So they were not even meant to be distributed in China. Right now, a lot of the sensitivity is what's distributed there. Then, of course, we've got the fact that everything was went straight up to the State Council and, you know, the the top levels of government. So once you got their approval, then everything fell into place. We could, sh- we could shut down the Bund back in the 80s because uh, the Bund was under the control of the government and also we could make a movie that looked like 30s Shanghai in 80s Shanghai because it hadn't changed that much. If you tried to recreate 30s Shanghai today, That would be a much more (laughs) difficult proposition. Would they be able would anybody be able to shut down Google I, you know, Forbidden City I that would also be much more difficult because now there's so many different individual proprietors and commercial interests. So once again, the politics and the commercial interests clash and back then it was really if you if you assuage the political powers, then you pretty much had your your everything you needed. I would also add to that, would those films be appealing to now? Would the Chinese want to see a film about The Last Emperor made by an Italian director? Hard to say. Would they want to see a film about the invasion of China by the Japanese told through the eyes of a young boy, even though it boy. was <laughs> a young white boy, even though it was Christian Bale? Um, that would be, you know, that's probably not the story they would want to tell. That's not the point of view that they'd want to
0: see. No, indeed, indeed not. Um, it strikes me though, and this is kind of depressing, that I was trying to think back of Chinese films of recent years that have made any kind of a splash, whether commercial or critical, in the United States. And you have to go pretty far back right now to think of something. I mean, commercially, probably it hasn't been since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, On Lee's film, and uh, it's not like the old days of the 1990s where uh, pretty much anything that came out from one of these fifth-generation filmmakers uh, did really, really well, at least critically. And it also strikes me that it used to be the case, and maybe it still is, and this is the problem, that the films that did receive any kind of a warm reception in the United States tended to be ones that engaged critically with Chinese culture, with Chinese politics, with Chinese uh, history. Uh, these were, you know, there was sort of this dissident, uh, f- oh, let's, let's be extreme and call it a fetish, but I mean, there was a, this real appetite for stuff that, that, ha- that was redolent of, of dissidents in some way. Uh, what's happening now, and w- what is it that, that, that the, the Chinese filmmakers aren't getting right? Is there a chance that they will at some point get the American tastes dialed in again and create films that will actually do well in the States?
2: Well, it's not even what they're not getting right. They're making a choice. I think they're making a choice. that box office in China is booming, and they're going for the gold, <laughs> meaning money, not the Oscar gold. Um, so they're... They, they have the opportunity, I think, right now to just feed the audience in, in a big way. And the audience is having a bigger, bigger appetite. And I think many of them are thinking, you know, at, while at one point they might have thought, oh, it would be so nice to get a claim, go to a festival. That's not good enough for them anymore. They, huh. they realize it's Hamafa. It's like to actually figure out what the rest of the world wants to see is kind of, it's not easy. And in the meantime, they have again... And you also often audience.
1: get arrested by your government at home if you... But the things that really interest the world outside, right? I mean, that is another problem.
2: Uh, I, you know, I don't know if that was Stephen Chow's intention when he made The Mermaid, for instance. He wasn't thinking, right. I might get arrested. <laughs> I think he was thinking, I want to make a film that just plays incredibly well in China. And, you know, Raman Hui making Monster Hunt, and Monster Hunt, too, okay. I think. you know, So I'm talking about those films. So, And because there are so many films now that, again, are feeding that appetite, and because investors... Are so happy to make the returns that they're making. Everybody's rushing in and they're sort of forgetting about that other thing called global respect, you know, on this, on the world stage of cinema. And they just are happy to do that. There, there was a time where they were thrilled if they got into the Cannes or Berlin Film Festival. That seems to no longer be that as relevant to many. That I sounds, think, yes.
1: isn't that healthy? I mean, if I think of the two other great film industries in the world is Nigeria and India. Bollywood and Nollywood. And none of those, n- neither of those film industries cared, have ever cared really about the market outside of their own countries.
2: And I think that, I think the rest of the world should start caring more. And I think we should be looking at films from India and Nigeria more. But the point is in China, where again, they're doing so well. I mean, I, I personally think that uh, it would be nice. You know, I know every year, we all, because I'm very involved with the Academy, which puts on the Oscars, and I'm always thinking, okay, what's China's going to submit this year for the Oscars? And it's usually the last possible film that would ever get nominated. Right. And it's unfortunate. You know, it would be really nice. I think, I think the Chinese would love it, too, if there was one day a film that was actually nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. But that doesn't seem to be something that will happen in the very near future. Maybe we, we we've always... Want to be surprised. Well, I mean, on,
0: on, on the one hand, it makes sense to me. I mean, that seems a sound strategy. But on the other hand, it's sort of sad. That suggests to me that there's going to continue to be a divergence between the, the films that are created interna- by, by, by China and by the United States. And, and, you know, that's not something I necessarily think is good.
2: I don't think it's good either, and and there are films. Uh, last year, for instance, I love this film, Youth, by Feng Xiaogang. Right, and we happened to sh- we were able to invite him over and do a retrospective of his right. work and show his film even before it was shown in China. Oddly, because they pulled it from theaters very very abruptly uh, in October for National Day, and then re released it the following year. But that's just an example. But he, you know, it's they they certainly were not about to submit it. They because I think the government's very concerned about the image that they're presenting and et cetera, et cetera. So we are hopefully gonna to grow together. Of course we know there's a lot of changes now in the film industry and we're in a kind of holding pattern right now because the film has been taken out of SAR and now placed under the Drumzjempu under the propaganda ministry or publicity ministry, depending on which translation you want to go by.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> yes. uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know, that's the State Administration of Press Publications, Radio, Television, and Film. Radio um, Film and
2: Television. Had, uh, they added press and publication to it to make right, it really right. impossible to yeah, they merged to say, two of yeah, them. Su- <laughs> um,
1: on a related topic, in February, DreamWorks Animation ended its partnership with its Chinese joint venture partner. Other major film production companies such as Paramount Pictures and Dick Clark Productions have also experienced a bunch of setbacks. Uh, while seeking partnerships with Chinese capital. Um, And Wanda's ambitious plan to build a global Chinese movie factory in Qingdao, which launched with a red carpet event attended by Hollywood stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, that venture seems to be, if not dying, at least kind of whimpering out. Uh, What does this say about the future of major tie-ups between Hollywood and Chinese partners, Dennis?
2: I think each of those examples are, are actually different in different ways. For instance, the DreamWorks animation was sold, uh, as part of a big package to Comcast Universal, and Universal decided it was not interested, perhaps because it has its own animation division, and it was then basically bought, the, 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 the DreamWorks part was bought by Li Reigang, uh-huh, CMC, okay. and so it's now owned completely by Lirigang's company, and it's now called Pearl Studios. I actually have a project there, and it's uh, going to be done in conjunction with Netflix. So they're very much still in business, just in a reconfigured form. The Hua, Hua uh, Paramount deal was a different situation. I think that was an example of a kind of company that was hoping to get the investment to put into Paramount, and because of government regulations, and because of, but primarily because they probably just didn't even really have the money um, they ended up selling their their own company for a fraction of what they said they could put into Paramount and then with Wanda That was you know that Wanda was the, the, the Qingdao, studio, the, the Qingdao right? Studios. I'm sorry, Wan Dian Lin. That was a case of I think of somebody who's who had made very grandiose plans and a lot of those business deals that he was talking about or actually doing didn't make a lot of business sense And I'm not sure it was a terrible thing. The government said, you know what, we got to scale back, and they decided to not let him uh, borrow money anymore. So Qingdao Studios, they actually just had their official opening. He sold the land there, and he now manages the studios. So they're still hoping for a robust business in Qingdao, and it's just not owned by him anymore.
1: So, I mean, this is not a trend, is this what you're saying?
2: Uh, it's Well, it is for sure that those mega deals that have got uh, people frothing at the mouth were like, you know, where people said, oh my God, there's just an avalanche of money coming out of China and we're going to get a piece of it. I think people have calmed down from that. Those deals just weren't making you know, especially when it was like a coal mining company that was suddenly getting into entertain, the entertainment business that <laughs> didn't make sense either But I do see a lot of deals happening on an individual basis per project or small slates There's a company that just announced it's making deals with several directors starlight entertainment made a deal with several directors like Michael uh, like Robert Zemeckis and, and several others so I think people are just being a little bit more cautious and realistic and not kind of doing things for the show of it
1: Janet, to totally switch tack now, the last eight months, of course, have been an astonishing time for gender relations here in the United States, beginning with the downfall of Harvey Weinstein. Hollywood has been at the epicenter of all of this, and as a woman uh, with a long career in Hollywood, and, you know, if we are to believe the problems of intersectionality, you're also an Asian woman, you must have had your share of stories to tell. How did you survive? (laughs) <laughs> We're not asking for your me too. <laughs> Am I here? Right now, I think but... I'm here.
2: Did I survive? I think I did. I did. Wow. <laughs> um, I've thought a lot about this question recently. I didn't even think about it that much. You know, I, I see life as being at least in three chapters. And in that second act of your life, you're just scrambling. I, I, I have friends with young children. They have careers. And I look back and I think, how the hell did I do that? It is hard, and so you're you're really just trying to get through the day. You're like, okay, I've got to do this and this and this. And, this and, this. and I now have a little more time to reflect. My son's in college, and you know, a lot has happened. And, and this movement has been mostly incredibly. It's horrifying on the one hand that we all put up with it because we did. I mean, I I did not. And I was actually quite shocked that Harvey was as. Uh, you know egregious and and criminal in his activities as he was but I but he was a jerk I mean like you know he was not a nice person that much I knew I just didn't know he was raping women so so it was worse than I thought and it was quite horrifying to learn about the depths of certain behavior by him and many others Um, but now I feel very gratified because we're actually at the forefront. The very industry that was, you know, promulgating or tolerating this kind of behavior is now standing up and that makes me very proud. I'm, I'm really, uh, amazed that it's happening in my lifetime. And I'm also given a lot of a fresh perspective because of all this. Because as I said, I think if, if you asked me 10, 15 years ago, well, how did you, how are you making in Hollywood? I would say, oh, I'm so lucky. You know, they let me in the room. I'm Asian. I'm a woman. How did this happen? You know, working with powerful men. But now I do see that the system is very skewed. And I am so happy that we can talk about it in a really honest way. And I do know that there are opportunities that were missed or advancements that weren't, you know, made or whatever because of being a woman and because of being Asian and how we're perceived. And that's why I stay in this sometimes what I think is a godforsaken business because the power of images is so important. How we are seen is so important. It affects business, it affects politics, it affects everything. So you know, I've been many times in rooms with just all white men and And there's this feeling like, oh, they know, and I have to adapt. So it's feeling of constantly adapting to what they do and how they talk and how they have succeeded. And I, what, what is gratifying now is that people actually want to hear what it's like to be an Asian woman. You're talking to me. I'm thrilled. No, it's like, but, but I think what, what women and Asians have to bring to the table is not just the ability to succeed in a white man's world, because I think enough of us have proven that it is possible to achieve success, but to bring a different different values and, a different, and to change the culture a little bit. I mean, women in general, and I would say that we're more collaborative, we communicate better, we, we can't afford to have giant egos. We would never survive if we had egos, if we were incredibly entitled. So we... we will get there one day. Oh, okay. I hope so. No. (laughs) I'm waiting for that day. But no, it's so much easier, for in my experience, to work with women and to work with Asians and there's this kind of camaraderie and it flows better and that's my experience. And I realized all that other stuff that I felt that made me feel really yucky at times I don't need that anymore. It's not, it's, it's not something that I want to put up with anymore.
1: And Janet, sort of on a related theme, I mean, you mentioned the power of, of image uh, to change lives. And I've been living in the United States for three years now, and I, I think it's quite noticeable that the number of Asian Americans on the screen is going up. I mean, the most obvious one, obviously, is Constance Wu, uh, Um, and uh, Fresh Off the Boat. uh, You have Crazy Rich Asians. (laughs)
0: It just got renewed for a fifth season. Yeah, Right.
1: right. Um, Are things changing? Well, I have
2: just seen two amazing works. One is uh, Crazy Rich Asians, coming out in August. Uh, It's a movie based on a best-selling book. Jonathan Chu directed, and it's got Constance and a host of wonderful Asian, Asian Asian-American actors And I think it really delivers. It's a romantic comedy. It's a crowd pleaser. It looks beautiful, great costumes, great set design. And I think, and it's, and here, here's the, the wonderful, awful fact. It's been 25 years since Joy Luck Club. And this is the first movie since then that is being supported by a studio. It's a Warner Brothers movie. No other studio at no other time has decided to make a movie with an all Asian cast. So it's historic, and it's good, and Warner Brothers is going to be spending money, I believe, to market it, so you should all know about it sooner or rather later. Yay! Absolutely. And, you know, it gives me great joy and pride to promote other people's works. I, You know, I've been hoping for a long time that there were others that we could say, yes, go see this movie, and that's one. And then just a couple of nights ago, I saw David Wong's play called Soft Power, and again, very, very satisfying, wonderful, at times brilliant. It's a musical. But what's amazing to me is that I have often felt my life was bifurcated, more than bifurcated. It was split into so many different compartments. I had my life in China. I had my life in Hollywood. I had my life among Asian Americans and activists and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was so, and the worlds didn't converge. And I feel like, Suddenly, literally, suddenly, all these worlds are converging because both those things I just mentioned, crazy rich Asians and self-power, they deal with U.S., China, or Asia, U.S., you know, issues and the differences between us. So it's, we're actually suddenly seen as more three-dimensional. We're not just like Asian and then everybody clumps us all together because if you're from you know, Singapore, if you're from China, if you're from American, but whatever, we we know the nuances. These nuances actually come out in these works, and it is truly gratifying to experience that. So I have to believe that we're going to see more of this. You know, David told me that it started out as a kind of a smallish play, and the the Center Theater in Los Angeles, they kept encouraging him to make it bigger and bigger so he could put all these grand ideas in there. And uh, it's quite wonderful. I hope you see it. It's going to San Francisco in June, and I'm sure it's going to come to New York. And Crazy Rich Asians, again, August 17th is the release That's fantastic. Release
0: date. That's just great. See, one of the things that I love about talking with, with Janet, and every time, you know, we... We engage on these these really big, deep sort of philosophical issues on I mean, you just heard her talking about uh, those fundamental differences between uh, people from East Asia, from between Chinese and and let's, let's call them Westerners. Uh, one of the things that we talked about not too long ago was there's an author by the name of Richard Nesbit, who has this book called. Geography of Thought, where he did all sorts of psychological experiments and looked at uh, the difference in the mentality between people raised in East Asian, Confucian cultures and people in the United States. You know, there's some questions about the methodology, about how pronounced these effects actually are, but I think for people like you and me reading this thing, people who inhabit both these worlds, there was a lot that was intuitively correct about it, yeah?
2: Definitely, definitely. I mean, when he... And because what, you know, making movies is not like making widgets. It's because you have to really go deep inside the culture and try to understand what stimulates people. I, The more you do it, the more you realize there are really fundamental differences. So one of the things that Nisbet talks about, for instance, is if you think about Western civilization was really born out of Greek philosophers. The Greeks were surrounded by people that were very different for them. So their vision of the world is that we're all different. And they try to convince people of their superiority through debate or through whatever, through their art, through their philosophy. And they really talked a lot about the intrinsic value of an individual person or a vase or of a god or whatever. So it was, it was, and if you look at the sculpture or the vases, you see how it's, you know, celebration of the human male body is quite magnificent creature, right? Then you have Chinese philosophers who Essentially were it coming from very large landmass, they had a, a really complete philosophy about the interrelationship between gods and humans and animals and nature and everything in the world, and we're just a small piece of that, and our job is to maintain harmony and balance in this giant ecosystem. So we come into the world, or most Asians, thinking, oh, well, we're part of something and our identity is based on we're the child of or the mother of or the sister or that our place in society, et cetera, et cetera. So it really affects the whole thinking. So, for instance, they, gave, they showed a video of a, of a school of fish, and one fish was very big and very colorful and then was surrounded by other fish. When they showed Western school children and they were asked to describe what it was, they were like, oh, we saw this one big fish. And then they showed Eastern school children like, oh, well, it's the interrelation between this fish and that fish and this fish. So we're always looking at the interrelationship between things. I think Westerners are very obsessed. Like in Silicon Valley, everybody's looking for the unicorn. And Steve Jobs was a genius. And it's always about that person that's different as opposed to what people have in common. I think that is, to me, it really resonated So fundamentally so, so different in the way that we think.
0: You can take that idea way too far, way too easily too, of course. But I'm struck by, you know, if you look at today, I mean, there's a lot of reason to celebrate. I think that these two cultures that we inhabit are connected to one another in ways that we couldn't have imagined at the beginnings of our careers. Right, Jeremy? I mean, there's, you know, Jeremy's another person who spent 20 years living in China. but but right now the, the the times that we face the difficulties that we face in this period after you know our FBI director testifies before the Senate and says that China poses an all of society threat that needs to be responded to and you know it's it's uh, where we have you know Marco Rubio just, just basically leading the McCarthyist witch hunts uh, what what uh, seems to me to be the case is that so much of this boils down to this. Values chasm that's rooted in these these basic differences. Uh, what should we be thinking about? What do you want to tell um, our the, the people on both sides about how how to better sort of. Navigate these these fundamental differences.
2: Well, these fundamental differences. We can talk about things that are very similar, especially as well, regards the sure. U.S. and China, because I think what's similar is that we both come from large land masses. I say we both. Like I can be American and Chinese, right? right. We <laughs> Americans, Chinese are both from these large land masses. There's a certain kind of confidence and comfort. I know a lot of people have lived all over Asia, and they immediately feel comfortable in China because there's a kind of just this camaraderie that exists and people are sort of curious oh, totally, and open totally. and unpretentious mm-hmm. and just, you know, yeah, that kind of direct... Yeah, hard work so, meritocratic, yeah. and meritocratic, basically, you basically
0: know, decent. Yeah. all of the hubris of believing that they can ultimately, you know, be a self-reliant single economy where it isn't necessary right. to learn another language. And, you yeah, know, they both <laughs> well, have their own ridiculous exceptionalism. Yeah, sure. <laughs> lots of things in common. I agree.
2: Well, that, well, the Chinese are much better at learning English than Americans are at learning Chinese, that's for sure. They're, they're definitely uh, outdoing us in that level. But there's, uh, and you know, clearly these are the two most important countries, I would say. I mean, in terms of the economies.
0: See, there's that hubris again. Can we? I know it (laughs) sounds
2: awful, but I think because they do affect global power. So what I find fascinating is that China, in every way, is challenging the fundamental principles that America was founded on. You know, can you have capitalism without democracy? I, I think China is proving you can, and then. You know, as somebody who, somebody, um, made a very good point. They were saying, was it Ronnie Chan? Somebody just told me this, that actually America has become the most ideological nation, that we're still holding forth on these values that we've been, uh, you know, raised with. And so, and some people would say China is, but, you know, they're both very, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. They're obviously evolving on their own axes and, and I, for one, feel like we have a better handle on what's happening in China than we do in America right now.
0: <laughs> you're, you're a member of the Committee of 100, and, and one of the big issues that you're engaged on is this... this how, really, it, it's how has the rise of China impacted how we as Chinese Americans are perceived here in the U.S.? It's a conversation I you know, had with Frank Wu uh, on a, a previous podcast um, before he went off on this long... Uh, Tangents about Keanu Reeves and Tiger Woods, but anyway, uh, we, we we had this we had this great conversation. Uh, but Janet, I, I'm curious about how has the rise of China impacted how we're viewed? I mean, on the one hand, I mean my sense is that it seems to be more of everything. There's more fear, but there's also more respect. There's sort of. Uh, well, yeah, those are, I guess, maybe the two major th- things in play, right? More more respect and, and, and more yeah. trepidation.
2: Yeah, I, I think that pretty much sums it up, I, I, again, through the lens of entertainment. I mean, it is interesting to see how it's evolved. Uh, it used to be Chinese people couldn't even have a respectable role in anything, or white people would play, you know, Asians, and then there was this kind of the, the buck tooth, you know, butler or the, whatever, the, the, uh, the prostitute thing, and right, the, the right. so that's all evolved and there was a time where if you saw any Chinese, it might have been more sort of the cultural revolution, blue ant version and then, you know, now we have crazy rich, I mean, are we crazy? Are we rich? Some of us, maybe, um, but at least it's, it's changing. It's, it's different and again, not, not to put down the movie, it's very, very good, but it does, it is maybe a lot for people to keep up with because, One thing we've always kind of been though is the other. And I think that's the part that hopefully will change over time. We're never quite normal. That's what I do like about these recent works that are coming out. We're edging towards more normalcy and that we can be seen as full-fledged characters and not just this other thing that's really hard to figure out. And we are, we actually, and this is, and to your point about, you know, U.S.-China culture, we we probably have a lot more in common than we have differences. And I think what most people who go to China for the first time are actually shocked that it feels so familiar and that it's so easy to navigate and they don't you know, they don't feel this giant block. When you read about China in the media, it feels like this very dystopian place sometimes. And it's actually, as many of you know, very colorful and very dynamic.
0: Yeah, I've heard that many times from people who've gone to Japan for the first time and gone to China for the first time and the the differentness is much more pronounced in Japan, they, they, they've told me, pretty uniformly.
1: So, Janet, let's uh, kind of, wait. we're getting towards the end of our time. Can you tell us what you're working on now, oh. since you've left um, Tongue Media Partners? Ah. There are a couple of things that you mentioned
0: that I wanted you to flesh out a little bit, like you said something about a show that's going to be on Netflix.
2: Uh-huh, okay, you're yes. With. Can you talk about yes. that? Yes, I can talk about that. That has been announced. It's a It's a... I was invited to, uh, at the time it was Oriental Dreamworks Animation, and they invited a group of us to form this sort of brain trust, and so I pitched a story that was inspired by Chang'e, the moon goddess, and I love that story. You know, there's a woman up in the moon with her rabbit. What's she doing up there? Why'd she have to go? But I also wanted to make it contemporary, so the story essentially is about a girl who comes from a mooncake-making family. So she hears about Chang'e all the time, she's always you know talking about Chang'e, and she decides she wants to go to the moon to meet Chang'e. So she actually builds a rocket ship and she goes to the moon. So we can look for it. We have a most amazing director named Glenn Keane who actually created The Little Mermaid for Disney and many other wonderful iconic images. And awesome. uh, so next fall, I believe, is the, uh, for, just in time for Mid-Autumn
0: Festival. Um, Aren't you working on some sort of a platform, I hear, about for, for, for showcasing Asian yes, female I, talent?
2: Yes, I've decided, you know, it, it, again, I feel like it's really a moment in time, and because of so much work that I've been doing that's kind of more pro bono-like with the Academy, I've introduced a lot of new members to the Academy and really working on international outreach and things, the U.S.-China Film Summit that I do with Asia Society. I realized that so much of what I wanna do is not just hustle for individual projects, though there'll always be that, but I wanna to try to raise the possibility of more people being in this, in, in this industry and just having a, a louder voice. So I'm really focused now on Asian female talent because I feel like the Me Too movement is wonderful but often Asian women get neglected and the Asian Asian American you know activity is wonderful but also often women get neglected and I feel like it's time to focus on Asian women what a perfect place to talk about this. I, uh, <laughs> so it, it's there's something very powerful that's going on when women get together and Asian women get together and and so yeah I'm I'm going to try to match content and talent with with buyers and investors. So that, that is something that I am focused on right now.
0: Don't, don't forget about the Asian males. Oh, too. won't I mean, forget about she, We were talking we earlier. She's, she's, she's going to put me we in something too. where we I'm going to be... even
2: like white men.
0: I'm going to be a, <laughs> a bad guy in a, a movie where I can, I don't have to say anything. Thank I'm just going to no, flower so medicine. It meant so that much
1: that to me. We talk about it in that way to make it...
2: And it's terrible. The, the goal is to be more inclusive and not just to be equally exclusive. <laughs>
0: He loves okay. all good. Jeremy, <laughs> I've forgotten that you're white. I'm sorry.
1: I <laughs> yeah, I, I'm white, but you know, you you have about 400 years of imperialism to make yeah. up for. So I'll this is true. You this. somebody, I was yeah. just having
2: lunch today with some people, including a white man. He said, "You know, when I screw up, I know I can't blame anybody but myself." <laughs> I thought that was very interesting.
0: <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Uh, what other projects do you have going right now? Yeah,
2: there's a lot of things. There's uh I'm working on a couple of different T V series and I have uh there's another uh, film that I'm working on about parachute girls, if you know what that is, it's I young don't. women who come over. Well, you know, because the education system is so rigid in China. So, a lot of parents decide pretty early on that if their child is not gonna make it a great score in the golf call, they better pivot and, and think about how they can have a path, you know, a more, more uh, s- uh, satisfactory path in, say, America. So, they send them to school here in middle school or in high school. And many of these kids are unsupervised, and they're you know they're living with homestays or they have condos that their parents bought them, and in places that where there's very very large Chinese communities, it's almost become a little mini society unto itself. So that's the
0: uh, oh wow that should be really interesting. Yeah. that should be very very interesting. Well, uh, I want to uh, thank you for, for taking the time to, to come. I mean, it's just always such a delight to talk to you and to be able to get you finally on the show. Uh, what a treat, and we're going to definitely have you back on again. Uh, first of all, let's, let's, let's thank Janet for, for, for spending time with us. Thank you. And. So, we, of course, we have to move on to the, the recommendations section of the show, and I think we've all got a lot of really good recommendations this time, so we're going to spend a little time with that. Uh, before we let you go, so let's, let's do make those recommendations, and before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners uh, that the cynical podcast is powered by SubChina. Join SubChina's access program for bonus weekly uh, newsletters, for discounts to events like this conference, uh, for free admission to our other monthly live podcasts in New York or in Beijing or in DC or wherever we have them. Uh, all sorts of other goodies as well. I also want to remind everyone that the Seneca Network is growing. In addition to this show, we now also have the Tyson Seneca Business Brief which comes out every Monday. Uh, not one, but two new tech-focused podcasts. We have the GGV996 podcast that we... Uh, that we we do with GTV Capital and the, of course, the brand new Pan Daily Tech Buzz China podcast, which is is really terrific. Find them both on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Let's move on to recommendations. Jeremy, it's our habit to have you start. and so let's...
1: Okay, I've got a really quick one, uh, which I may have recommended many years ago on this podcast, but it's really getting good now. It's an app called Pleco, P-L-E-C-O. Oh, Pleco, it's indispensable. Uh, it's a Chinese dictionary, but you, know, you can look up Chinese to English and English to Chinese. It has optical character recognition, so you can scan things. Menus. Um, <laughs> so, it, I mean, it, it's really aimed at people who are uh, learning Chinese, not native Chinese speakers. But if you're a Chinese speaker, you can learn it you can use it for english too pleco very can good can i app. jump
2: in okay I can't. absolutely yes, please. i want to jump in and say what's also amazing is that if you get this long email and you don't know some of the characters you immediately copy that and stick it in pleco and it tells you right away That saved my life
1: yeah, mine too yeah, yeah.
0: You know, there's there's i think translation software has really come up uh, a really i mean it's Im- quite impressive these days and a lot of that has to do with the application of deep learning of, of ai now it's no longer they're, they're not just uh, doing statistical sort of comparisons from big corpuses of existing translated uh, text. They're actually doing smart, uh, ground up translation now, which is just a very, very impressive advance um, because of deep learning. Uh, so whether you, you, you use Pleco or Google or Baidu or whatever, the, the translation software is, is getting really great these days. OK, Janet, you have a couple of recommendations for us. I hope you'll take time and give them all oh. to us.
2: Oh, there's a, a book uh, along the lines of the difference between Eastern and Western cultures. There's a book by someone named Gish Jin. She's normally a novelist, but she wrote a non-fiction uh, book because oh, really? she spent a lot of time in China, and it's called The Girl at the Baggage Claim. And what she's referring to is a situation where a young woman from China was accepted to a very, very good school here, passed the test. They had a Skype interview, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, when the school went to pick her up at the airport, they found that the parents sent her sister instead of her. Oh my God. and so she analyzes like in what world does this happen and how does it so she talks a lot about the uh, identity and names and and the diff- varying levels of attachment thereof and it's a fascinating book and it's, it's similar to geography of thought but it uses a lot of anecdotal information
0: oh wow that sounds really good you had a couple more though I mean I, I wrote down a few that you oh. were gonna you were gonna talk about uh, that Chojo book right uh, which one Chodron. Sorry.
2: Oh, right. Oh, okay. Well, that is, um, so we didn't really talk that much about it. Uh, but I think life balance and mind, body, spirit, and all of that is incredibly important. Look, we have all lived with a lot of failure and disappointment in our lives. I'm fairly certain. If you haven't, then you haven't lived, in my opinion. The one go to book for me when things are not going well, and I just need to stop and reflect, is a is a book called When Things Fall Apart by a Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron. P-E-M-A Chodron, C-H-O-D-R-O-N. She, for some reason, there's many books of this kind that I quite like. Jack Kornfield has written some, Thich Nhat Hanh. But for some reason, this particular woman, Pema Chodron, is my favorite. And I read it many, many times, and it just really dissects, so much of literally when you get to that point like oh my god did I just really screw up or why is this happening or whatever you know it's easy to talk about successes it's much harder to talk about failures for every project I've made there's 10 15 20 that didn't get made I mean I interviewed Jack Ma for over a year to do a project and every investor wanted to be involved in it and blah 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 blah. and then for various reasons it couldn't get made you know, I mean, it goes, the list is goes on and on and on. And I, I do think it's really important to sit with those failures and disappointments as much as enjoy the successes. And I think that makes one's life much richer.
0: Excellent recommendation. Um, I want to recommend a beautiful novel, which I finished recently by an author that I really like. Uh, his name is Richard Powers. And he's written a quite a, a, now, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant some years ago. Uh, this novel, I, don't, I mean, it, he's, he's written quite quite a number of excellent uh, novels. Some of my favorites include uh, Three Farmers on Their Way to a Dance, uh, Operation Wandering Soul, and The Goldberg Variations. These are all really good novels. But this one, this is called The Overstory, and it refers to, you know, the upper canopy of trees. So there's a metaphorical thing at the heart of this. The story is really, it's it starts off the first half of the novel. It seems to be, uh, several, maybe as many as a dozen, s- quite separate short stories, but all of them are anchored, to re- rooted to, if you will, the idea of trees. So it, it's really about trees. It's it's an environmental novel, uh, but it's written absolutely achingly beautifully. And of course, these all weave together in the overstory. Uh, they sort of like the canopy of of, of separate trees do, and it's it's. It made me, first of all, as soon as I finished it, jump on Amazon and immediately order the most lavish encyclopedia of trees that I could possibly lay hold on. So I bought this illustrated encyclopedia of trees that I'll probably recommend on another show. But And then I've, I went out immediately into the, the, the acre that we live on and you know, identified, oh, that's a linden. I didn't know that was a... That's a beach. I'm like, that's a hickory. I had no idea what these were. I'm terrible with trees in Chinese, too. I, I realized this when I was trying to, to tell this to my... I didn't know... I knew the, how to say oak and maple... And that was about and, and pine generically pine, and uh, I, I need to brush up. Maybe pleco is going to help me learn all the names of trees. But this this is a beautiful show, a beautiful novel. Uh, it's called *The Overstory* by Richard Powers. Can so, I, can uh, I, I mention? Is here.
2: there time to mention something? Absolutely. I just I, I gave a talk not too long ago at the Committee One Hundred, and I said something that apparently really resonated with a lot of people. I said when I was younger, I felt like a seed. And I was looking for nutrition elsewhere I didn't feel like I was I felt like I was in foreign soil but over time I kind of found a little bit here a little water here growing roots growing up and then you know soon I'm growing branches and trees and then suddenly I realized that people are actually looking up to me and I'm providing shade and I just want everybody to know that you too can be a tree the amazing thing now is that we are a forest because I love trees as well and I that image to me Last, I would like to make one other recommendation of a book. I Please. haven't read it yet, but it gets rave reviews, and I think it would resonate with a lot of people. It's called *The Leavers* by Lisa Ko, and apparently it's about a young Chinese boy who gets separated from his mother, and he gets adopted by a, a, a Caucasian family. And it's the story of the mother and the son, and it sounds fabulous.
0: Uh, terrific recommendation. So we have a, a good batch for you guys. That should last you at least the week until next week. So. <laughs> Thanks very much, Janet, once more for, for, for sharing your ideas, your experiences, and your recommendations with us. And, um, Jeremy, let's, let's, let's get Janet back on soon, yeah? Yes. yes. Have Thank, Thank you. So you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email, really do, at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever it is interested in podcasts. Uh, and thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.